Hello and welcome to episode 3 of Filter Watch, Small Media's monthly podcast on Iranian internet policy. I'm Kyle Bowen. On today's show, we'll talk about Iran's cyber army's hacking campaign against civil society organizations. We'll be interviewing two special guests to gain insight on the group's methods, targets, and what to expect in the future. But first, headlines. The U.S. government is preparing to publicly attribute a 2013 cyber attack against a New York dam to Iranian hackers. According to officials quoted by CNN, the Justice Department has prepared an indictment against people thought to be behind the attack. The Revolutionary Guards launched a crackdown on the Instagram pages of Iranian models and professional photographers. The action, nicknamed Spider Operation 2, led to the arrest of dozens of Instagram users who published modeling images on their accounts. The IRGC then hijacked the accounts of those arrested and displayed a message reading, this account is suspended according to Islamic law. ICT Minister Mahmoud Vaizi announced a change to Iran's filtering policy. Previously, internet filtering had been administered at the international gateway level, which is the entrance point for the internet in the country. The new changes, which are part of Iran's intelligent filtering system, will ask Iranian ISPs to start blocking illegal and immoral content. And that's it for news. Next up, we'll take a closer look at one of the Iran Cyber Army's recent hacking campaigns by speaking to two people who experienced it firsthand. We conducted these interviews over Skype, so sorry that the quality is a little bit off. To discuss these topics, I'm joined by Jillian York. She's the Director of International Freedom of Expression at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Jillian, welcome to FilterWatch. Thank you for having me. So. Today we're talking about state-sponsored hacking, in particular the Iran Cyber Army. And so I wanted to start by asking about your own experience. You yourself were a target of, of this group. Could you talk about that? Yes. Uh, yeah. So last uh, fall, early early fall, late summer, I guess, um, I was visiting a friend in Sarajevo and uh, started getting phone calls um, from a number that had a UK country code. Um, it was pretty strange, kind of early in the morning, but I thought, okay, maybe they don't know where I am. Um, and the person identified themselves as a journalist with Reuters, um, which you know is not very strange in my life. This sort of thing happens, although I think it's kind of rude to call that early in the morning. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> um, but you know, I couldn't really understand him, so I, I hung up. He called back again, um, said that he wanted to discuss something, and, and checked my email address um, to make sure that he had the right one. Um, and so, I, you know, I was awake at that point, so I checked my email, and the email was a little strange. It was at a um, ThompsonReuters.com email address, but Reuters was spelled wrong in the um, in the from field. Um, and then there were some strange kind of other spelling errors and, and just weird things that made it look clearly like phishing um, to me. You know, right. somebody with like minimal experience in phishing and no experience <laughs> with phishing. Um, so then um, I didn't open it. I ignored it. Uh, another one was sent. The guy called back. He kept asking me if I'd gotten the email. I said yes, but, you know, I'm not going to open. And I actually said I'm not going to open an attachment. Um, you know, I'm not an idiot. Like if you want to send me something, <laughs> write it in the body of the email. And I kept saying that to him and he kept calling back. So Eventually, I just stopped. Um, you know, I just stopped answering the phone. I think he called about thirty times. Did you talk about why you think maybe you were targeted um, by this this type of attack? 
Sure. You know, I don't do a lot of work on Iran, um, but I, I have a lot of connections within the digital rights community um, with people who do. And so my suspicion, you know, given that uh, that a number of other targets were, or a number of other people um, in that community were targeted, uh, I suspect that I got caught up on some list. Um, or, you know, maybe they thought that if they were able to get me in an attack, then they would be able to get my contact list. Right. And so on that point about working together, um, do you get any sense that there is collaboration between different groups, for example, the Iran Cyber Army, maybe the Syrian Electronic Army, or what's your more general sense of the landscape of state-sponsored groups in the Middle East? Well, I think that the thing about state-sponsored groups are that, you know, a lot of them are kind of working in an ad hoc fashion. So even though they're, you know, getting funding or resources from a state, um, I don't think that these groups are particularly formalized. You know, I don't think they're all sitting in one room in an office. Um, and so because of that, I think that there's a lot of opportunities for human connection and learning across uh, different groups, um, just like there is in any hacker community. And so my suspicion is that any overlap is coming more from that than it is from actual state collaboration. But, I, you know, I'm, I'm happy to be wrong. Right. OK. And then so what do you think is going to be the future of these types of groups in the Middle East? Will there be more sort of collaboration? Will they remain decentralized? What, what's your sense of how this is going to play out? Um, you know, I don't like to speculate. Um, I think that, you know, it's it's clear at this point that governments are learning from each other across the board. You know, we've seen um, countries like China defend their surveillance by pointing to the U.S. and so on and so forth. Right. Um, and so, you know, I do feel that whether governments are deliberately collaborating, they're certainly observing what one another are doing and learning from that. Okay, well, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for talking to us. Sure. Thank you for having me. I'm joined from New York by Amir Rashidi. He's an internet access researcher at the International Campaign for Human Rights in Iran. Amir, welcome to FilterWatch. Thank you for having me. Today we're talking about uh, state-sponsored hacking, in particular the Iran Cyber Army. And this is a topic you have worked on a lot. So first, I want to just get your general sense of uh, state-sponsored, or I guess quasi-state-sponsored Iranian hackers, sort of the capacity they have, motives, targets, just a sort of general overview. Well, um, actually, they start to do this kind of thing after the presidential election 2008. Uh, and on that time, they weren't really, you know, good, and they hadn't spent a lot of money on the uh, internet thing, but days by days they they improve themselves. They spend more money on internet censorship and uh, hacking people, and you know, doing the social engineering thing. The most uh, um, interesting thing that they are doing is two things: they use social uh, engineering stuff, and also they send some malware to the users those those are usually targeted people sometimes they targeted uh, just regular civilian because they want to you know use their account to attack journalists and human rights activists and politicians uh, recently also before the election parliamentary election and assembly of expert election also they uh, they try to attack some some journalists uh, mostly journalists who are really close to the reformist party and reformist people. Okay, so um, could, do you have um, anything that sort of surprised you in doing this research? Any cases, any incidents, any techniques that you were really taken aback by? 
Um, I can tell you since 2008 until uh, last year, most of the attack that they use, the technique that they use was based on social engineering the stuff. And uh, even before that, in 2009 until 2010, mostly they use, you know, they force people to give them their passwords to, you know, get into their accounts. Recently, they kind of, I can say, kind of improved their knowledge and they use malware those models are not really really you know uh, great but it's it's work it's work and really good works uh, basically they uh, use the kind of uh, bug in uh, Microsoft uh, office things and they use uh, they wrote some macros based on uh, Microsoft PowerPoint usually they send people a PowerPoint. The, one of the interesting one was the during the uh, this recent election when the, the uh, when they actually dis disqualified uh, the grandson of the Iran revolution Iran revolution fo uh, founder uh, Khomeini. They sent a PowerPoint to the journalists, and you know, on the body of image they wrote, "Here, Hassan Khomeini explained." why they disqualified and here is the, his statement. So this is really interesting for journalists. And usually people, you know, they, they are not aware that uh, if somebody wants to issue a statement, they, they send you a text, not a PowerPoint file. <laughs> right. So they open the PowerPoint file and immediately they get hacked because that PowerPoint, uh, there is a keylogger in the PowerPoint and, you know, Anything that people uh, type on their keyboard, basically record and send it to uh, their servers. Right. And so that sort of brings you to the next point about when someone gets hacked, what can you do? So as, as a researcher, if someone comes to you and says they've been hacked, what kind of things do you tell them to do or what do you try and do for them? Uh, the first thing, is, well, it's, it's independent what kind of attack is that. If it's a social engineering thing like uh, like phishing, well, I, first of all, I ask them to send me a copy of that email. And when I do a, some some study on the email, I'm giving them some advice. If it's a like a phishing things, I I tell them you have to immediately change your password and use two-step verification. And if you are inside the country, definitely you don't mm -hmm. you 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 should get the, the two-step verification code through the Google app, not through the texting message, because you know the Iranian government can uh, actually uh, get the password through the right. uh, texting message. But if it's a malware, it's a little bit more complicated because the, the K-Logger, even if you change your password and you have to have a verification, and the malware attack is a, uh, a K-Logger, it's a little bit complicated. Uh, sometimes, sometimes I, you know, I remote on the, I going on their computer and try to fix it. And I know some, some of the people, they are working on a kind of removal uh, tools for this kind of malware. The, the third one is a little bit difficult for normal user to, you know, figure it out. Well, uh, Amir, thanks so much for being here. Thank you very much for having me. For our last segment, we'll look at a few interesting statements from Iranian politicians and ICT policymakers. Yeah. 
According to Internet World Stats, the number of Iranian internet users has increased from 250,000 in the year 2000 to 46.8 million in 2015. The report also states that of Iran's population of over 81 million people, around 46.8 million are internet users, which places the internet penetration rate at 57.2%. Iran and Afghanistan signed an agreement for the development of fiber optic between the two countries. In addition, Afghanistan will buy telecommunication services from the TIC. Syed Abdul Hassan Firuzabadi, Secretary of the Supreme Council of Cyberspace, said there is no point in blocking social networks like Telegram because people will find an alternative solution, as has happened previously. He noted that when Iran blocked Viber, users moved to Telegram. Golam Hossein Karimi, president of the Telecommunication Devices Guild, said three companies have been negotiating to get licenses from Apple to sell Apple products in the country. These companies include Vegaye Gostarfars, Ariane, and Sam Service. Karimi went on to note that they still have not received any official license from Apple. And that does it for this episode of Filter Watch. You can download that episode on iTunes or SoundCloud. We hope you'll check it out. In the meantime, visit us on Twitter at small underscore media or see our work at smallmedia.org.uk. Thanks for listening.